Hello everybody, welcome to the Juan Galt Podcast. I'm your host Juan Galt and today we have an interview with Gabriel T. He is an energy consultant, an analyst, um, he's sort of pseudonymous in this interview, you know, wants to keep it in the down low, but he's part of a trading group with Ugly Old Goat, my mentor, who, you know, it's a pretty good private sort of group, and he's been making some really interesting commentary on energy. Uh, a lot of energy analysts, a lot of market analysts are, are kind of bullish on the price of energy. They think that oil is going to go up. You know, people like Tom Vase think that that the price of energy and oil in particular is definitely going to go up because of the geopolitical situation. I've certainly argued that as well myself. However, Gabriel is actually an oil bear in a sense that he thinks that the price of oil will probably plateau around $65 and stay there for a very long time. Uh, he thinks that the oil market is on a secular bear cycle and uh, actually makes a really compelling case. Um, dispelling a lot of the myths I think that you see on financial Twitter and around the more right wing or you know center right side of the political conversation. So this is why I wanted to have him on and uh, no regrets. This was a great conversation. He really knows a lot about the industry, and it's awesome to have experts come on and kind of uh, let you shine a light on topics that uh, are otherwise somewhat opaque and um, often mixed up with the fog of war. So we talk about why he thinks oil prices have peaked, and uh, you know a lot of the things that insiders. Uh, no, in the oil industry, the markets don't seem to catch up on until much later, as well as uh, how the Biden policies have actually led to record Western oil profits. So this is a great conversation for, let's say, macro analysts. I think you're going to enjoy it. And um, finally, we do a rapid fire set of questions that actually I really enjoyed. We talk about AI, Venezuela and Latin America and the stability of this zone from his perspective. He thinks it's you know fairly good, but we talked a little bit about Venezuela and how how crazy things have been there, as well as Argentina. Uh, he thinks that there's going to be war in the East, and he will go into a little bit of more detail on that, as well as his favorite book and uh, the habit that he thinks everybody should get down early. So if you want those premium questions, you know, sign up for $5 a month, subscription on my Substack, and you'll get access to the premium podcast content. Otherwise, hop right on and um, let us know what you think. I think this was a good show. Sorry if I'm a little bit sick right now, and there's a little bit of a keyboard noise on this podcast. Uh, that will not happen again. I'll make sure of that in the future, so don't expect that to be the norm. Uh, the quality will continue to improve in this podcast. Um, as far as podcast apps, real quick, check out Fountain.fm. It's a pretty cool lightning-powered app. We uh, we give some tips there, and you can clip audio notes. And, and if they're really good, I'll give you a tip for, for clipping out your favorite moments of the podcast. Uh, if you want to sign, you know, stack sats with Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com is the best. Just go to swan.com slash huangalt, and you get 10 bucks for free. And it lets you dollar cost average into Bitcoin, which is the best way to buy Bitcoin. You end up getting very low average prices over time. And then when the rocket ship starts taking off, you're in the green. So check that out. Um, and finally, I read a 
blog post at huangal.com every month. We go into depth into various topics, including AI, geopolitics, Bitcoin, and even love. So sign up to huangal.com and I will not let you down. Thank you and enjoy the show. So there's a lot going on in the energy markets and um, you're in one of the trading groups, uh, the one with Ugly Old Goat, and you've had some very interesting commentary that I wanted to kind of um, just talk to you about a little bit more. Uh, but before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience with energy? You don't have to get into specifics, but just give us like a general overview of your experience. So I, I've been involved in the uh, downstream uh, oil and gas market since 2012 um, on the consulting side so it's a boutique consulting firm it's not uh, one of the major ones um, so the downstream there's probably you know there's upstream downstream and midstream uh, the downstream side handles the refining of the products upstream handles the oil supply the production whereas the downstream side is the refining the products like gasoline um, diesel uh, heavy uh bitumen uh, base oils anything essentially and you can go even further down to the uh, petrochemical side in the polymers and all sorts of plastics and things like that huh. okay. so i'm more in that involved in that area actually i'm only involved in that area but you need to keep an eye on the um, upstream side of course because our clients are integrated companies so they you can't have huge operating losses on upstream and then try to make up for that in downstream can happen, but that those are really rare cases. So when companies are making money on the upstream, they're willing to spend on downstream. Usually that's how it, it works. Gotcha. And um, can you give us a little bit of uh, some basics, right? Like what is, what is gas and how is that different? Let's say from liquid natural gas or oil, There are terms that are thrown around, but sometimes they're kind of intermingled. So maybe you can define those terms a little bit for us. Yeah, there's two types of crude, sour and sweet. Uh, most of the crude out, out there is, is sour. Um, crude, you have sweet crude, which is low sulfur. Basically, whether it's if it's high sulfur, then high sulfur content, then it's sour. If it's low sulfur, it's sweet. Usually you get the premium for that because you don't need to uh, desulfurize that. Uh, gas is natural gas, like that's the largest market. There's also biogas, but that's that's very small. Uh, it's growing, but it's still in its infancy. Natural gas, methane, um, it's since the last 30 years, I would say it's competing in, in the downstream side with some oil. So you can set up your refinery in such a way that you, you crack The gas molecules to produce diesel or to produce uh, other composites like even even waxes like the Fisher Trops process. So to keep it simple, it's they're very intertwined, uh, oil and gas. So okay, even though there but is obviously a, obviously methane is methane is very different than oil, right? Like the the black yes. gold as they called it, that's oil, 
and then yeah, natural the, gas is kind of like a vapor, right? Like it's a kind of a liquid. Yeah, it's yeah. The, the problem, the main problem with gas is uh, to put it simple, simply, it's the fact that it's it's gas. So in order to transport it, um, you need uh, you need to have pipes. Now with mm -hmm. LNG, with liquefied natural gas, there is a way to liquefy it and then transport it, and then you need to deliquefy it. Um, and this process, like it's it's expensive, so right. Um, oil is therefore like has a, a better use case. You can easily ship it. It's liquid. You can put it in huge tankers, ship it around the world. Uh, whereas gas, mm -hmm. you need pipes or to 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 basically ship it in LNG and then degasify it. First, you you uh, you make liquid, right, at really low temperatures, and then you regasify it using temperatures again, temperature treatment. So there's a couple of narratives um, that are playing out, at least that are trending in the circles that I kind of pay attention to. And one of these narratives is that OPEC plus plus or whatever they call it these days is they're kind of a, a, a coordinated monopoly of sorts that they're, they're trying to take back pricing power from energy and oil, I suppose, and uh, maybe natural gas as well. And um, and the, and they're they're trying to wrestle pricing power away from the United States, who's had this sort of petrodollar uh, control over the price of oil for 50 years, right? Um, is that is that an accurate representation? How would you look at that? Well, this um, it is it is quite accurate. They started um, in terms of oil production, so the upstream side. They tried. Um, they tried to wrestle with the U.S. when there was the shale boom, like in 2014. So Saudi Arabia, particularly, they tried to bring prices so low to bankrupt all shale, all U.S. shale oil producers uh, and keep it there for like one or two years to see what happens. And well, they did manage to 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 not to necessarily bankrupt them, but. To put them out of business, a lot of uh, the premium producers. Um, you saw These what are American happened. producers, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you saw what happened to the oil prices uh, in in 2014, 15. Like it, it went to something like twenty five dollars the VTI, and the Brent was thirty five dollars, something like that. So they did manage to some extent, but they they couldn't keep it there because Saudi Arabia was the only mark, the only uh, country making money on those prices and they were barely making money. So they had to let the prices come back. So okay. now again, they think that they can do it again because U S is ramping up again. Uh, uh, not just shell oil production, the Alaskan um, Gulf um, offshore drilling. So it's <laughs> like if, if the U S starts to invest like companies like Exxon Chevron, um, BP as well, like the British and the, the Shell, like start investing again massively in the U.S. production. Like this is is just gonna overtake, really benefit from what OPEC is doing. It's just gonna grab market share from from OPEC plus. So I think it's it's, it's wrong. I think they read they read the market wrong. They thought that um, U.S. producers are vulnerable, um, and they they thought that it's it's the time again to sting them to try to take uh, away uh, their market share. And to not let them develop because when, when, particularly like in, if you look back in 2014, like what they did, they said, okay, we will suffer 
for two years. And then, you know, once again, once these guys are bankrupt, they're not going to come back online so quickly. But the thing is about shale oil that you can quickly ramp up production. You don't need to dig up huge wells like you do in the offshore. So offshore um, uh, resources come on stream and it takes like two, three, four years, depending on how, how complex the projects are. So I think they misread the market this time. Um, they, they thought they're, they're selling the whole story that the recession is coming and, you know, that therefore we're decreasing the price. But it's actually a price war. Like they're trying to put uh, American right. companies out to the business, when it, which is really stupid because if you look at their 2021 uh, and 2022 uh, profit and the margins of those large oil companies, Western oil companies, they're huge. It's they never had such huge profits in their in their history, so they have a lot of money they, they, sitting around. So they they can <laughs> use it to dig up new new oil and invest. So on top of that, even um, Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden, when he ran for office, he was uh, heavy, supporting heavily the, the green energy and green transition, green deal, and all sorts of things, right? And then the inflation kicked in, and he said, okay, we need to release the strategic petroleum reserve. We need to reduce the inflation. And he, even before OPEC's move, he, he signed a, uh, an act to allow oil companies to dig and to drill in in Alaska. Um, and then OPEC Plus came with this um, with this silly decision to to decrease uh, production. Um, this just played into Joe Biden's hand because now he has an excuse. He says, look, you, you know, they're not selling us oil. They're not keeping the prices low. So we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, so we're in the middle of that kind of that that game that that transition, and and for a little bit of context, um, so since the Ukraine war, it seems that OPEC Plus has been cutting supply in order to increase the price and put pressure on to some degree Western powers, but also profit and try to wrestle pricing power. And then with the Ukraine war, the sanctions on Russian uh, gas, which is, I'm assuming is oil, right? The, the, it's not natural gas, it's oil. Um, it's both. They, uh, it's both. Like it's Europe, both. Europe doesn't, like buys, at the moment, Europe buys only 5% of what they mm-hmm. used to buy from Russia in terms of natural gas. And for oil, like it's been a total ban since December. But it's still some, of course, some Russian oil flowing in through intermediaries, like they're just mm-hmm. swapping tankers, like, mm-hmm. and it's easy to do. Like you just change the the cargo of the tanker. Yeah. So of course there's still some coming in, but it's kind of like gray area, and the volumes yeah. are really low compared to what it used to be. Yeah, one of the stories that I that I uh, reported on um, last year on my big kind of geopolitical newsletter, the first one that I wrote, is that Saudi Arabia was basically doing kind of an arbitrage. They were buying cheap gas from Russia, which was cheap because of the sanctions, and then they were using that and then selling all of their production that they would otherwise consume to the West, you know, at a much higher price or like a you know, market price or whatever. So they're doing an arbitrage. They're buying really cheap Russian energy and then selling their, all of their own output to, to the West. Is that right? Yeah. When you say gas, you mean gasoline? What do you mean? Gas? Yeah. I believe, I believe it's gasoline. I believe it's uh, oil, but uh, maybe it's natural gas as well. Uh, you can probably clarify this a little bit for me. 
Well, gasoline is already processed. Gasoline right, is so, processed. Like, it's not crude. Right. So did you hear about this story that I'm referencing, though? Yeah, I think I think it's 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 more complex than that. I think okay. if you look at European consumption, um, um, diesel consumption is really high because we have the we have a, a, about forty percent of the forty to fifty percent of the car park they're diesel engines. So Europe was always importing diesel from Russia because we don't produce enough. There is not enough refining capacity to make that diesel. So the the Russians, they can't, you know, refining economics, it doesn't work like that. You can't change overnight production. You need like months, sometimes three, six months, depends on how complex the process is to tweak, to retweak the production to have more output, more gasoline and less diesel. So they had this excess diesel. So what they did is like they sold it to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia sold it, sold it to Europe. That's true. Mm. So Europe never had an, 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 uh, a shortage of, of diesel. The prices were a bit higher, but, you know, we never had the shortage. Right, right. Okay, and then on the Western side, um, you know, during the Trump era, Trump had already opened up those Alaska uh, wells. And, uh, you know, America was like, uh, you know, they were exporting a lot of a lot of oil, Um and then Biden came in, and then and, and Trump's last sort of months, or at least the, the end of his of his of his uh, administration, was you know had a high focus on the on the Excel pipeline, I believe it's called. Let me have it right. Here. Yeah, the Keystone pipeline, right? So they had they they were setting up the Keystone pipeline. It was like a Canada, U.S., Mexico pipeline, and then Biden came in and shut that down. I guess to to try and fuel this sort of green energy stuff, right? Exactly. And then it okay. turned out that he was even more bullish for oil as Trump was, like especially now, like in the last huh. uh, six months, he became even more of a of an oil bull than Trump was a lot more. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So Biden basically, you know, in the background, you know, probably not uh, on behest to his political sort of uh, party or his his people. He's basically like, like it, this isn't being reported or talked about widely. I actually hadn't heard that Biden had basically opened up the reserves again and um, was, you know, was opening it like like making space. Is your argument that Biden's been creating room for the American? energy industry to sort of ramp back up and, and that's coming very soon. Exactly. And, and you have to remember something. Oil is not um, something that doesn't go bad. I mean, you can, there is a certain amount of time you can store it without it going bad. So at some <laughs> moment you need to, to deplete those, you know, like reserves and fill them again with new oil. So maybe like uh-huh. those uh, oil reserves were also about to expire so we don't know that because wow. it's not it's not publicly known. Um, but my guess is that a lot of it was about to expire, so they had to use it anyway. And huh. on top of it, he was buying time. You know, he was buying time for the U.S. producers to ramp up production, which is happening. Right. Like if you look at the charts, you look at the production; it's it's slowly rising. And and huh. next year, I think I think towards the end of the year, there's going to be a, a huge surge in production and even like right. people people who are insiders in the oil market i mean look at what the I, I was telling the group the trading group back when 
you know, OPEC Plus just did the move and the market gapped up, right? To 86, mm-hmm. was it? Like something like that. Market just gapped up on the news. And now it's back down. It's even below the gap because the oil uh, uh, professionals, they know. It's just not talked about, but the oil professionals know what's what's coming. So nobody right. is bullish on oil who's an insider, especially mm-hmm. now with the EV uh, revolution. Like, yeah, and everybody we'll thinks that, that EV, EV cars, you know, like these EV cars, they're not going to, they're going to destroy mm-hmm. oil demand, which is true. But you know, the biggest destruction of oil demand came from motorcycles, like electric motorcycles, rather than the cars in the last two years. And and this is because you know Southeast Asia is full, is riding on motorcycles, so their mobility depends on the two wheelers, not the cars. They don't have money to buy cars, so they're mm-hmm. riding uh, motorcycles. And I'm, if you're from Colombia, you probably know because you have a lot yeah. more motorcycles than the U.S. A lot and, of and Europe has. Exactly. Yeah. So imagine oh. that Southeast Asia, like it's the same. It's even more motorcycles per capita compared to uh, anywhere else in the world. So they were going mm-hmm. electric and they destroyed like in one year, 1.6 million barrels of oil, like demand, which could have been consumed by, by internal combustion motorcycles. So it's, it's going fast. Like, like the demand is, is decreasing fast. Huh. Well, so we'll talk about demand and we'll talk about Tesla and, and, and electric uh, towards the, later end of this of this podcast i want to i want to ask you a few more questions about just kind of to set the stage for it um so so biden obviously is you know creating room and, and opening up production in the united states so to speak um what is you know i understand that it's the the strategic oil reserves it's not public what their expiry date of these oil reserves is i, I didn't even know that oil expired so what is the general you know What's the general assumption of how long oil lasts in storage? Uh, it depends how it's stored. I have no okay. idea. Like it's, it's, it really depends in what form and shape is. is, is. But gotcha. it's crude. I know that as a fact that it's crude. It's not stored as a distillate in any way. So crude and everything that's organic goes bad. So and oil is organic. <laughs> so just know that that's a rule of, of thumb and chemistry. Like whatever it's organic, it goes bad. So how, like, if you had to guess, like how long, you know, are we talking about like a couple of years? Gasoline gasoline Mm -hmm. lasts about 15 years at most. Okay. Like it it turns into water, water content increases. Wow. So it's like if you watch those zombie movies and they find like old cars, which are 20 year old and they're still running, that's complete bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> because the <laughs> tank will be full of water and decompose the gasoline. Huh. So I, w- I would say that's 15 years at most gasoline. I don't know for crude exactly. It should be lower. Right. Because it's not distillate. So they didn't remove the, they didn't crack the molecule or clean up the, the oil. It should be lower than that. Right. That's really interesting. Um, if I remember correctly, Trump filled up the, the strategic oil reserves during that weird futures uh, crash in, in, in Wall Street of, of oil futures that went negative 20 or something like that. Um, there was nobody to buy them. And I believe it was Trump and Trump's administration just came in and took them over. You know, basically got paid to buy them. 
Um, I don't know if you remember, if you heard that story, but yeah, um, yeah, but it wasn't like it wasn't fully depleted. It was at 60, 70%, something like that. Okay. Petroleum reserve at that time. It was, okay. I, I don't remember exactly. I don't want to talk without knowing. Sure. But I, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't, um, it, it was something like uh, 60 or something like that percent was still mm-hmm. full. So it was still like 60% with old oil mm-hmm. that needed to go. Right. Right. So it's been expiring. That's really interesting. Um, this is a, a side of the story that I, I haven't heard about. And I, it's clear that it's kind of a, an insider sort of understanding that's not making the media. Um, so what do you make of this idea then that, that OPEC, because there's people that are saying that oil is just going to go continue to go up and up and up and that basically the, the West is kind of screwed. Um, it sounds like you, you think that's not, it's not what's going on, right? I mean, at least, so, so obviously America is, is, is ramping up production again. Um, you think OPEC plus is, is on the, on the losing side of this trade. Yeah, definitely. I, I think they don't, they don't have enough analysts and expertise and uh, like really oil champions like Kuwait and, and all these small countries, they hire expats to fill in the, those roles, they barely work. Like they, they get the reports from expats who are hired for a lot of money. And for some reason, I don't know, they, they don't have those reports or they don't trust them or think they can do better. I mean, they're still operating as if they're, it's 1970s. <laughs> I mean, uh, the U.S. is number one producer now worldwide uh, and the technology and the companies, the expertise they have to, to produce oil is just, it's it's number one like in terms of technology and drilling techniques and everything so why would they do that i mean you give you give opportunities to, for exxon chevron and all the majors to gain market share globally right that's fascinating it's dumb it's, dumb. it's really dumb wow very very interesting you know like you look at biden and you see an old man who can barely speak but Obviously, there's a whole, you know, infrastructure of strategists behind them that are actually playing a pretty savvy game, and and it's interesting that there's such a gap of, of understanding of what's what's going on on that, on that front. Um, and speaking of and Biden, plus and, oil, oil is in a secular is a secular declining market right now. Like mm-hmm. oil is not growing anymore. Right. Oil consumption peaked because we have an aging population in most of the world. Okay, we still have Africa, which is, well, the population is still growing. But mm-hmm. the developed world, like, I don't think Africa is going to jump from from bikes, from uh, bicycles straight to cars. I think mm-hmm. they're going to go first to, to uh, motorcycles, just like um, Southeast Asia and South America is doing. Mm-hmm. So that, that's going to be the case. And if, if they buy electric motorcycles because they're more efficient, they're easier, they're uh you know they're longer lasting and then that's gone like it's <laughs> so i, I really wow. question the future of the oil markets i don't think the demand in itself is going to go down continuously i think it's going to find a plateau somewhere i don't know where mm-hmm. that is at the moment but it's definitely not a growing market anymore that's so every opportunity every opportunity you give to to the us guys like who are the top oil producers in, te- in terms of technology and output 
by company, like, of course, if you exclude Aramco, because Aramco is the world's uh, largest uh, oil producer as a company, but if you exclude that, and even Aramco runs on on Western equipment, so on uh, Baker right. Hughes stuff and Hamilton. Um, okay, so, well. and, and I really want to get into this sort of electric and, and, and Tesla story, but before we get into that, um, what do you make of the of the pipeline that got blown up going into Germany from Russia. Um, I mean, I don't know how much you can speak to it. It seems to me pretty obvious that the U S blew it up probably in collaboration with Poland or something like that. Um, but <laughs> what do you know. think about I really that? Don't know. I, I yeah. really don't know. Like it's, it's, it was weird news. Um, yeah. It's, it's well, not the deep sea. Like the Baltic sea is, is, um, it's not that deep, so it's not so hard to do it. Right. You don't need such like high tech stuff. But I, I wonder, like, I mean, they have some satellites all over, so they would be able to identify mm-hmm. all the ships that were in that area during those days. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they have an idea who it is, who it is. Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty big uh, story from an OG journalist. Um, I can't recall his name right now, but I mean. Apparently, like, there's a strong case that the U.S. blew it up. But, again, it's also obviously in the fog of war. Um, and and it seems like, obviously, it hurt this union between Germany and Russia. Uh, it, it seems like they didn't blow up all the pipelines. A couple of them survived. Uh, but it also seems like it opened the door for LNG. So, like, right after that happened, the U.S. started selling LNG to Germany through through the northern uh, European states. Um is my understanding of it. Yeah, well, the idea was that Europe needs to replace the, some of the gas supply from, you know, anywhere they can. And there was a spike in LNG prices, like last year in, 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 in somewhere in July, July up mm-hmm. to October. And they grabbed every single molecule they could, they could put their hands on. And it was really bad for countries like uh, Japan, Pakistan, and all those countries were traditionally LNG buyers. So, uh, yeah, I mean, because Western Europe is rich compared to most uh, countries, developing countries, which use LNG. So, yeah, we managed to secure our supply because we're relatively rich. So, but this is going to change, right. I think. I think, of course, LNG flows are still going to keep coming in, but the uh, the amount of renewable energy that's being installed and uh, biogas installations and the biogas effort in Europe is just amazing. Like, so that's going to replace some, um, like, I think the most optimistic. Biogas? Is about, yeah. Biogas. In Europe. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of biogas uh, in Germany. I think is the champion of world's largest producer of biogas at the moment. But they burn it to produce electricity, so mm. there's no added value in that. I mean, now they clean it up and produce biomethane, so biogas right. is still very dirty, so you need to clean it to be the equivalent of natural gas. You need to clean it, filter it, essentially. Okay. And then you can use it in bio-CNG, bio-LNG, you can produce anything out of it. Okay. What What is your, um, let's say sense of how this winter has gone for germany because you know before the winter you know late let's say autumn that last year there's a lot of concerns about germany there's kind of a panic 
you know, panic buying of wood and wood stoves, you know, prices were going up, you know, the, the Ukraine war was kind of at its hottest, hottest moment. Um, and the assumption was that Germany was going to really suffer and they were going to fold and start buying more gas from, from America, from, from Russia through these pipelines, which coincidentally conveniently got blown up soon after. Uh, how has this winter been for Eastern Europe and, and, and Germany and so on? Oh, it's been fine. East Europe didn't shut down the coal power plants. So it okay. was relatively easy to just switch back. So East Europe didn't suffer at, at all. Maybe it suffered in the sense that electricity prices were higher, a lot mm-hmm. higher because we had to pay a common price. We have an intertwined network of electricity. Um, so mm-hmm. we import and export like freely throughout Europe. So the prices, mm-hmm. obviously, because of West Europe, like it went up in East Europe as well. So we had to pay like three, four times higher prices for a limited period of time. Um, Germany in itself, like it's um, the, the level of debt to GDP, public debt to GDP is really low compared to other Western countries. Like it's it was 60% before COVID. So what they did is like they they went, they spent 200 billion in the package, rescue packages, um, and it just increased the public debt a bit. And now they're coming down with coming down with some further stimulus packages. So Germany in itself was suffering a bit in Q4. It was, uh, I think, something like 0.5. So 0.5% decline in GDP. So all matters equally that's that's nothing like bearing in mind they they were so heavily relying on the russian gas so there is not much i mean france was in a sort of a an impasse like they were waiting for their nuclear reactors to come back online Uh, many of them were shut down because of maintenance work last year and there was the drought which put a lot of them out of out of uh Part of the grid. So I think the the story in itself, the, the most hit country probably and will continue to be one of the worst affected, uh, Italy is, is the worst because they uh, they use 50% of their electricity production comes from burning natural gas. So they really, um, uh, things in Italy, there still are terrible, like in the sense that a lot of Restaurants, industries closed down because they could not afford the electricity bills. So I think that's number one. The worst hit second would be um, probably Austria a bit. Austria was also affected. Latvia, Lithuania, so the Baltics, which were also heavily intertwined with the the Russian um, energy. But otherwise, like, it's, it's... it's not that bad as, as it may sound. And next right. winter would be even better. Huh. Okay, so there is a there is actually solid progress being made to in Europe to become independent of Russian oil um, by the sounds of it. And Germany, um, I believe they, they shut down their coal or did, are they opening that back? Um, and and you're saying that they're actually very heavily invested in in, in, in production of of, of biogas. Uh, yeah. That's their play with Germany. Yeah, that's yeah, a play for Europe as a whole. Um, Germany, Germany never they 
they never really shut down their coal power plants. They just put them in reserve. So mm. what that means, like when you put a, a coal power plant in reserve, it, everything is prepared to fire it up. So even mm -hmm. the oil inside the turbines needs to be uh, replenished and maintenance done. So they were sort of prepared because that's how Germans are. They prepare for the worst. So it was relatively easy for them to just fire up the power plants, the coal power plants to replace the, the gas with coal. Of course, it was not perfect. Like it's because coal power plants are not as flexible as gas. With gas power plants, you can easily, you know, switch on and off and, you know, like increase the 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 production whenever you want with coal is not that easy you need to prepare like few days in advance you need to ramp up mm. and then you know you need to keep it like that so it's a bit less flexible than the gas power plant there's a story that that, that came out recently about uh china and russia uh entering like making very serious moves into arctic gas drilling apparently china's making building uh, icebreakers that are and, and moving them through i suppose russian territory to get arctic gas and that the prediction was that in the future we might see arctic uh energy wars as well uh have you heard of this story what do you what do you make of it well okay i'm not that familiar i mean the 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 route for commerce is better for china to go arctic to go through the north because they would need they would avoid the a lot of the problems with Southeast Asia. So if they get in a conflict with, let's say, India, they would not be able to ship their goods. Mm. Um, so it's it's a, basically it's a kind of a additional route they could take is the Arctic, right? Uh, and it's faster to reach like countries like Europe. In Europe, like where you know we're still relatively rich, we can consume those uh, Chinese products. So that's one. And in terms of drilling uh, through the Arctic, I mean, the, the Russians were doing it. They, they had a project with Total. They're doing uh, LNG in the up in the Arctic. Uh, Total, I, I'm not sure whether they pulled out of the project or not, like very, due to the war. So there, there is mm -hmm. there are projects there. Um, I think the Russians will have a hard time doing those projects without the equipment coming from the West. China has some... Mm -hmm equipment they they're getting better but they're not traditionally um invested too much into the drilling uh oil drilling especially offshore like they're not as specialized as um western companies are like schumberger okay. and baker hughes who are highly specialized in, in this equipment okay so it's not easy to do it's one of the hardest things actually right Um, yeah, like I'm looking at a map right now and it's like, like if the, if the ships are created in China, that's a really long way, you know, up Japan, North Korea, and then the, this, the stretch of Bering, you know, by Alaska and then up, or do they go through a river through Russia? Like, how do they, how do they even get the ships up there or produce them in Russia, I suppose? Well, you need to remember that the globe, the globe is not, I mean, it's the route is not that it's actually shorter. Through it's the actually Arctic. shorter. Yeah, because the okay. globe is is um, through the equator, right? It's longer. Like, uh, right. The maps which we have, which we use, they're not. Yeah, they're, really, they're not what they are. <laughs> yeah, they're not really uh, scale. They're not built for. They're, I don't know how why yeah, they yeah, built yeah. them like that. 
it's really wrong. Yeah, yeah, they're actually pretty messed up. There's a website called something like Remaps. I'll, I'll look it up and put it in the in the show notes. But uh, and it's like you won't, won't believe how distorted the map we're used to is compared to what what the the actual size is. So, okay, that's that's uh, that's super interesting. Um, let's get into this Tesla story because um, I think a lot of people are sleeping on it, and there's there's kind of like a people like to hate on Tesla, you know because there were such green energy people. And then now since Musk went to free speech side and Twitter, and now the left wants to hate on Musk. And so there's like a, people almost want to hate on Tesla, but at the same time, Tesla's got a very uh, kind of a powerful ramp up of production and they definitely dominate the energy market. And it seems to me like, like I didn't really understand or respect or appreciate Tesla for a long time until I realized that by being electric vehicles, they can get their energy from any energy source. It doesn't have to be oil. So if if a if a if a country ramped up nuclear energy, right? For example, those cars could be powered by nuclear energy, and that's that completely changes the game. Like you can produce energy in whatever way, and these cars will be able to get charged and run, which is a, a huge diversification from the oil and and, and petrol sort of gas industry. Um, is that is that right? Like, how do you how do you look at this? Because it seems like course, a very like exciting it, it, paradigm it, shift. It sets up flexibility in the system, so you don't depend on the uh, rich uh, oil rich countries anymore. So you, you your commerce, your uh, mobility, um, agriculture, you know, constructions they all use oil a lot to do their job. So obviously, like the the moment you you change the dynamic like you can produce electricity out of anything like you you have steam and gas turbines and then you have solar panels which is the only kind of way of producing electricity which is not turbine related otherwise it's it's steam and gas and well hydro which also spins a turbine so basically you can produce electricity in so many different ways it's just that the the world has not invested enough to diversify it was so easy and cheap to to burn coal for hundreds of years and to industrialize fast now you know that we have so many different technologies and ways of producing electricity obviously like the moment you for like europe is not stupid i mean we're forcing uh, we're giving subsidies to to people to buy cars in the beginning and then after we reach a certain threshold I think it's 15% of the park or something like subsidies don't need to be there anymore because people are going to buy it by themselves. Um, and then we're not dependent on those oil, oil rich countries. Right. And you know, whether you, you use wind, whether you use, um, I don't know, solar panels, uh, gas, coal, whatever, nuclear, like obviously you're flexible. It's hard to do. Like it takes a lot of investment, but you know, once it's done, like you have a, you have a pristine grid which is balanced you can't have only as you mentioned before nuclear like go full on nuclear like france did like they're heavily invested i think they're something like 70 percent or like huge amount wow. like they have uh something like 57 gigawatts capacity okay and they usually consume per day 37 so they're they're you know they're out of proportion the problem with those reactors is that they were built like 30, 40 years ago and they, they constantly go on maintenance. 
Um, and you need water. You need like rivers uh, nearby. You always need water to cool the reactors. And when you have a severe drought, like you did last uh, last uh, last year, then you have a problem, as they did. So it's not that easy. And it's well, it's safe right now. It's not what it used to be. So it's there's right. not a safety aspect. But you're still sort of dependent on the uranium exporters, and the top uranium exporters uh, in the world is Kazakhstan, Russia, right? And then huh. you have others. Wow. Um, okay, so that's interesting. Dependence on uranium exporters and one of the you know Kazakhstan in, in Russia. That's not convenient, but. Is uh, from all other angles, it seems like nuclear is kind of the ideal, no? Like what? Like I, I hear that 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 there's you know new nuclear nuclear factories, I guess you would call them, or nuclear um, energy plants, like new designs that are much more efficient, that even more secure than, let's say, you know what what we imagine. Is the sourcing of, of uranium the only downside to nuclear? Like, what? Why is it nuclear more popular? It seems that. Is it just a matter of time, or do you think it's not an energy that's going to dominate? Um, I think it's 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 definitely great to have it in your uh, mix, like electricity. In terms of gotcha. a, a country, if you take any given country, it's great to have uh, nuclear because it's constant power, high load, but it's not flexible. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest downside to nuclear is that it's not flexible. I mean you can't really switch on and off the reactor. Like once you switch right. on, you know, you go and you can't switch it off. It's not like gas. Like with gas, natural gas, you can you can turn on and off the production quickly. You can tweak it. You can produce only half of the load. Um, so it's not flexible at all. It's pretty right. much like coal, like in the sense that once it runs, you need to keep it running like at certain load, you can't just decrease. Mm -hmm. So it's not flexible enough. And that's that's an issue, like yeah. especially if you have renewables in your system, like let's say you have wind and solar, right? Solar is pretty clear, like if the sun is, is shining, you produce, but when the sun right. is not shining, you need to replace it with something else. With wind, it's more mm -hmm. tricky because you get wind um, and you don't know for how long you're going to have it. So... You, you have to balance right. that. And how you do it, you do it with gas. Because with natural gas, you can quickly ramp up when you see that wind is not blowing anymore to compensate for that. Right. What so about... Um, and and it's, it's really counterintuitive for people that don't study energy, um, how be, having too much energy production is actually a problem, right? Um, and... So maybe you can illuminate that a little bit, but it sounds like, you, you know, you just, you got to put the energy somewhere. And if you don't have a storage for that energy, because the batteries are really expensive, then like walk us through the problems of too much energy output. Like what's, what's the issue there? Well, you put it in the ground. If you have overproduction, like that's what the communist countries uh, used to do. Like when you overproduce energy, uh, electricity, right? Um, you yeah. just put it back into the ground. That's it. Um, one way of doing it, yeah. Uh, one way of like of what they would really love to do, like in the final years and, and of the communists, like in the eighties, they used to build these huge dams, hydro dams, and at night when they, they, the factories were shut down, they would basically use their extra electricity to pump the water inside the dam to huh. fill up the dams. So it was kind of a, oh. a natural battery. Like a battery. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So that's what they were doing, but it was still a lot of it was put into the ground. So they were producing electricity for nothing. So yeah, wasting, it's, yeah. It's, it's waste and you produce CO2 and polluting. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's you need to balance the grid. So that's why right. you need to have a mix. You, need, you can't just have nuclear yeah. or just coal. It's not right. Mixed. Like you need to have a mix. And I have to ask about Bitcoin mining at this point because it seems like that's one of the big arguments for Bitcoin mining. It seems like it's being implemented in, in, in Texas fairly efficiently to do this kind of balancing, right? To like to instead of flaring the gas, like literally burning the excess gas that you don't have demand for, um, you just plug in a Bitcoin miners and that'll produce a return. And then Bitcoin miners, you can turn off at will. Um what, how do you see Bit- the Bitcoin mining industry? This is is that overhyped or like do you see a real use case there? Of course, there is. Um, in the sense that you can also um, use arbitrage. Like if let's say you have you're you're in an area which you have cheap electricity, and well, you want to sell it for higher, right? But you don't want to build a grid. So what you do, you put on the Bitcoin miners, you mine the Bitcoin. And then you sell it. So this way, you basically arbitrage right. the the markets, the electricity market with Bitcoin. So yeah. you can do that easily, and you don't need to build the grid, which is a very expensive thing to do. Like transporting yeah. electricity is, is expensive, not easy, and you lose usually. You lose uh, quite a lot mm-hmm. by transporting it across uh, long distances. Right. Like right. Texas is, is very heavily on gas, as you mentioned, like they don't flare, they burn it to produce electricity. So if you look at the electricity mix in Texas, it's it's they have a super high capacity in gas, natural gas. Um, I think it's 60 something, 60 plus gigawatts of, of, mm-hmm. of natural gas um, power installed. Like they I can even check what they use today. I think they use, let me quickly check how much they use now, right now at this time live. They use about 30% of, 33% of that. Hmm. So they have huge Mm -hmm. uh, overcapacity. Right. Yeah, so it makes perfect sense that that there's a lot of Bitcoin mining uh, taking over in in, uh, in Texas, do you imagine? Uh, can you can you imagine France becoming a big Bitcoin miner, given this sort of excess nuclear? Not really, because they they have troubles with the reactors. I mean, they're they're right. too old. They need uh, to invest. Um, I, I think a lot of them will never come back online because it's just not safe. After forty years of running them, you need to right. have. A lot of maintenance work, reinforcement. Um, you have lots of oxidation problems, so you can't right. do, just do that. I don't see that feasible. Plus, um, like nuclear energy is not the cheapest per mm-hmm. megawatt. The cheapest is by far solar, followed by wind. Mm-hmm. So then probably hydro comes up. So nuclear is somewhere in the middle. It's not as expensive as, um, I don't know, it depends where you live, like gas and coal. Like nobody burns oil anymore. I mean, maybe in some countries in Africa, they still burn oil to produce electricity, but usually um, nobody burns oil anymore. Right. 
Um, Max Kaiser seems to, I mean, I've heard Max Kaiser argue many times that, that the costs of producing wind and even solar um, energy are actually very high. Like these are not, there's are industries that are generally operating at a loss. Um, have you heard him make that argument? Like what is, what's the, what's going on there? Actually, I'm very close to the wind energy. I'm, I can't speak about solar too much. Mm-hmm. Sure. But for wind, um, I'm very close to it because uh, the petrochemicals involved in the process, like especially in operating them, in the oils needed to operate those uh, turbines. Yeah, you need like oil to yeah to for so that the turbines spin and they don't grind up to a halt, right? You need to keep them oiled. Of course, up. yeah, yeah, exactly, right. exactly. And it greases hydraulic oil and uh, gear oil. Not right. for all of them gear oil, but most of them use gear oil. So those, mm-hmm. yeah, the OEMs, so the equipment manufacturers, they make losses. I think it's it's because their business is 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 so transformative, um, and they miscalculated some of the things that they do. So they do make losses. You look at Vestas, you look at Siemens, um, Gamesa, Siemens Gamesa, right? They barely make any uh, profit if. I think they made huge losses last year because they had to mm. to call back on warranty a lot of uh, yeah. gearboxes. Mm. And you, first off, it's they're heavily competing with Chinese, with Goldwind, mm. right? Guys like Goldwind, they produce cheaper turbines. So Siemens and Vestas, and GE, right, from the States, they need to kind of, they had to lower their price to be competitive. Mm. And that was one of the reasons why in the first years that they were trying to keep them out of business, like the Chinese, and they didn't, they did not succeed, obviously. And secondly, it's their poorly run businesses. Um, in the beginning of the 2000s, they were saying that you can use a wind turbine for about 10 years, and then you need to replace it, which mm. has proven to be wrong. You can use it for 25 years. Well, so that's, <laughs> it's good for us. It's bad for them. Because the more, for, the longer you oh, use yeah. for hmm. producers, the longer you use those turbines, the less they're going to produce or the more, um, you know, so it's not, it's not great for them. Because so they, they make money out of selling the turbines. So they can't, exactly. the, the demand exactly. for the turbines goes down. Wow. Okay. Exactly. And now they made another mistake with the warranties. They started offering warranties for 10 years, which is a lot, like 10 years to hold those equipment on their balance sheet. Like if mm-hmm. something goes wrong, that, I mean, like last year it did for Siemens, uh, they had to replace a lot of parts so that that crushed their whole profit for last year. Mm-hmm. So they made a lot wow. of mistakes, I would say. So it's not, it's poorly run, poorly run business. Okay, but you see, you see it as a business that does have a long-term future. Like they are kind of figuring it out, stumbling through it as they are. Of course, like I mean, German government is not going to let Siemens Gamesa go bankrupt, right? Right. Uh, right. Denmark is not going to let Vestas go bankrupt because they need them. Europe right. needs them, <laughs> and not just Europe. US needs GE to keep producing those. So I don't mm. think anybody will let them go bankrupt right. at this point. Maybe. Uh, maybe in 2040 yes but not now so <laughs> they need to change right. their business the way they're doing business they, they should not offer like 10-year warranties it's crazy like nobody does that 
I have not heard of any equipment provided do, that does that. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. Right. And secondly, like they can't just outprice, um, they can't go lower in price than the Chinese producers. That's also stupid. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's just it's just fascinating the the energy industry. You know, I I'm I'm kind of a novice learning about it, and the complexity of it is, um, and just just the power games and the geopolitics of energies. Uh, kind of a fascinating story. Yeah, is there is there anything else that you want to say on on the Tesla story? Because it seems like, I mean, you know, the, the, their their output is very strong. Their prices are coming down. It seems like they're actually yeah, I mean, they have kind of the cutting edge of engineering. You know, like we could really be like, like by the sounds of it, you could be buying a pretty decent Tesla car for twenty five grand. You know, in a few years, like we're we're not far from that. Yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Um, and they they had the start, and now everybody else is following them. Volkswagen, Daimler, right. like all the European OEMs, they're pushing heavily towards. Um, electrifying their their uh, their product line and they have that the deadlines to do so like 2030 2035 i think um, a lot of the oem produce uh, european oems uh, car oems they're not gonna make internal combustion engines anymore so yeah. i mean anybody that denies that this that, that electric cars are good or something i think they just have to open their eyes and just do some reading and visit yeah. some websites and look around. I mean, it's if this were 2019, 2018, I would say, okay, they have a point. But right now, yeah. there's no way you can deny that uh, it's not the trend or the direction in which we're going. It's definitely it. Right. This is it. So, so are you bullish on Tesla? Uh, I'm bullish on the Tesla <laughs> as, a, as an engineering company, but not on the stock price. I think the stock price is highly overvalued. Especially now that it has lots of competition, um, you have a, almost anybody trying to compete with them if they're not competing already. So it's really hard. Like when right. you're the only kid on the block that does it, yeah, okay, you're you're great. But if everybody else is trying to do it and does it successfully, then it's not so easy anymore. Right. Okay, so and and finally, like, where do you see um, gasoline prices or like you know oil prices going the next few years? Then, do you think they're going to continue to kind of they're stabilized? They'll go down a little bit. Um, sounds like that's kind of where you're leading. Yeah, it's it's long term prices. Probably it's going to reach a plateau. Um, I think we we've seen the peak. I don't think okay. we're going to see it over over a um, hundred uh, for. Only if some other conflict spikes up, I, uh, some conflict can you know do it yeah. for a short period of time. But I'm talking about long-term price settlement. So um, yeah, they used to be like from 2011 to 2015, 14, 15. There used to be a plateau at around 100. Then between 2017 and 2020, there was a plateau at 65. So I think the long-term plateau is it's always going to be lower and lower. Right. So, because now we have new technologies that don't require oils as much. Huge. So this is going to go below 65 probably in the next uh, huh. decade. And it's going to stay there. Wow. And usually spike a bit and then go below and so on and so forth. But the long-term like plateau price 
for the next decade probably going to be below 65 and then in the next 20 years probably it's going to be settled around 50. Below 50 I don't see it happening because you still have lots of emerging markets yeah, emerging which markets. don't have any any mobility and they require cars right. motorcycles they just require mobility to develop right yeah like uh, like if tesla or some of these energy this car manufacturers start come out with like you know high end low cost energy bikes electric bikes maybe that could help them skip skip that that development step um and i wonder i i actually I can see now Tesla coming up with an electric motorcycle. Um, I can imagine it's probably going to be announced. Mm -hmm. It's very hard market to compete in. I mean, the Chinese OEMs, they just dominate Southeast Asia. And they they have like, (laughs) they have scalability. They have diversity. It's really hard to compete with those guys. I see. I mean, Harley started like, tried. I think they already came up with the electric bike. Harley Davidson, but that's stupid. I mean, oh, yeah. who can who who can you ima- can you imagine yourself on a on an electric Harley? Like, that's, no, that's you know. pretty cringe. <laughs> off, off brand, off brand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you want to check out the premium uh, side of the podcast, where we do a, a series of rapid fire questions on AI, Latin American, Asian uh, geopolitics. And a variety of other topics, more a little bit more personal. You know, what's your what's the most influential book in your life? Uh, what are the most important habits, or what's the most important habit that you think people need to get down? Uh, check that out at Substack.com. You got to sign up for five dollars a month, and it'll help support this work. And you'll get uh, access to previous premium po- content uh, with other guests that have come on the show. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.